It's finally here and you can get your hands on your own copy of Art Curious, stories of the unexpected, slightly odd, and strangely wonderful in art history. You'll love the book, which includes some never-before-shared tales of art history. Stories about America's favorite grandpa of graphic design and how he became radicalized in the 1960s. How two women may have beaten Vasily Kandinsky to being deemed the world's first abstract artists. And a deeper dive into the debate over who created one of the most shocking artworks of all time. Art Curious, Stories of the Unexpected, Slightly Odd, and Strangely Wonderful in Art History, published by Penguin Books, is available right now wherever you buy your books, ebooks, and audiobooks. You can also read more about it and order your copy, and one for a friend, at artcuriousbook.com. That's artcuriousbook.com. Hello all, Jennifer here with our second-to-last listener's favorite episode and our number one listener's choice. Okay, that is kind of confusing, I'd bet, so let me explain. Earlier this year, we posted our survey for listeners to choose their favorite episodes of the Art Curious podcast, and hundreds of you were kind enough to fill it out. Thank you so much. I then totaled up the five episodes that received the most votes, and we've been counting them down Casey Kasem style towards our number one most popular episode. And we did it. Here we are. This week, we've got our number one choice. But this is only the first of two episodes sharing that story. A couple of weeks back, we shared with you the third most popular episode, which was from season one. Is the Mona Lisa a fake? It made sense to break it up into two parts so that it just listens better. Because your choice was actually our longest episode ever. Was Van Gogh accidentally murdered? Just shy of one hour in length. And so we're re-airing our re-recorded two-part version of that episode from February 2019. Just like we did with our Mona episode, we won't make you wait two weeks for the exciting conclusion. That finale will be waiting there in your feed next week, so make sure you're subscribed to Art Curious in Apple Podcasts or wherever you choose to listen. Thank you to those of you who sent in your notes and your voice memos. It's been my absolute favorite part of doing this series. Today's first note is about the podcast in general, and it's from Laura in Phoenixville, Pennsylvania, who writes, Thank you for your podcast. After a friend had recommended it, I listened daily on my commute to and from work, catching up with all of the back episodes. I was so disappointed when I had to wait for a new episode to be released once I had listened to the whole library. When I took art history in college, it was so hard not to nod off during those lectures. But I love Art Curious. You are a fabulous storyteller and make art history so interesting and truly, strangely wonderful. I'm wide awake and continue to look forward to many more future episodes. Thank you, Laura, for your enthusiasm and kind words. And I completely understand about trying to not fall asleep during your old lectures in college because that is why I did this show. I was in your shoes once. And next up is a note from Marissa Pescucci, a curator, art historian, and educator in Cornelius, North Carolina. She writes, I have always found Art Curious podcast equal parts entertaining and educational, presenting the best little-known facts that I was either not taught in school or have forgotten over the years. As I have transitioned from curatorial work to higher education, Art Curious now serves as a fantastic resource and trusted research tool for my students, as I know for certain each episode is expertly researched and written. Marissa, thank you so much for sharing. 
It means the world to me to know that educators and curators like you are using this show in a professional and or academic setting. That is my favorite thing. Before we begin, please forgive me another shout out for my book, Art Curious, Stories of the Unexpected, Slightly Odd, and Strangely Wonderful in Art History. It is finally here! It was released by Penguin Books on September 15th, and it's been such a thrill to hear how many of you are loving it, reading it, ordering it for holiday gifts, and so forth. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And let me note that if you like this story, then you should know that this episode was greatly expanded into a chapter in the book, where there are more details, big updates, and more information. Your interest in this story allowed me to go bigger and better in that chapter. So today, here you go. You chose it. It's your favorite episode. Was Van Gogh accidentally murdered? Please note that this episode contains adult content, including information and details of suicide. So please take care when listening. When I was a college freshman, I played hooky from chemistry labs and anthropology lectures for one day and instead waited in a long, long line in an uncharacteristically chilly morning in Los Angeles. This wait was my first ever experience with what is generally known as a blockbuster exhibition. So it's the kind of show that draws record-setting crowds to spend record-setting dollars in order to cram together to view artistic masterpieces for a very limited time. In my case, this exhibition was Van Gogh's Van Gogh's, which featured numerous works from the Van Gogh Museum in Amsterdam. The allure of seeing so many paintings by one of the most popular artists of all time was so strong, and at that point in my life, I had never seen one Vincent Van Gogh work in person, let alone many, so I just had to go. Classwork be damned. Of course, many other people had a similar idea, and so together we swarmed, hive-minded, past paintings filled with shimmering colors and exuberant brushstrokes. I immersed myself in bright sunflowers, swirling self-portraits, and lovingly painted landscapes. But when I turned into the final gallery, something stopped me firmly in my tracks. I stood in front of a horizontal painting, divided nearly in half by tones of cobalt and ochre, with the darkness of the dark blues representing a gloomy sky, almost a shocking contrast to so many of the more vibrant paintings I had admired in the previous galleries. The artist's hasty brushstrokes revealed a dash of greenery, turbulent swaths of wheat, and a red-brown dirt path disappearing towards the horizon. Above, in a churning sky, is a flock of blackbirds. This was Wheatfield with Crows, a showpiece created just prior to Van Gogh's untimely death in late July of 1890. For over 100 years, viewers have been struck by this painting as I have been, and interpretations of it have been many and varied. But the one that seems to stick, whether or not it is accurate, which, surprise, it isn't, is that it represents visually Van Gogh's growing depression and hopelessness. And as such, many read it as a kind of preview of his upcoming death, a suicide note completed in paint instead of ink. Van Gogh's suicide is as much a part of his history as the famous tale of the cutoff ear is. He's been called the perfect embodiment of the tortured genius, a creature so agonized by life and failure that he sought his own death as the only solution. But in 2011, two Pulitzer Prize-winning authors published a book titled Van Gogh, The Life, that stunned the art world. In their book, authors Gregory Whitesmith and Stephen Nafee state that the artist didn't actually commit suicide. No. Instead, they said he was actually murdered. Some people think that visual art is dry, boring, lifeless. But the stories behind those paintings, sculptures, drawings, and photographs are weirder. 
crazier or more fun than you can imagine. And today we are revisiting one of our most popular episodes from our very first season about one of the world's most beloved artists and the attempt to uncover the mysteries surrounding his death. This is the Art Curious Podcast. Exploring the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in art history. I'm Jennifer Dassel. It's nearly impossible for us to separate Vincent van Gogh from the idea of Vincent van Gogh. From Irving Stone's 1934 blockbuster novel Lust for Life, to the 1956 movie of the same name starring Kirk Douglas, and even to American Pie songwriter Don McLean's schmaltzy single Vincent, you might know it as the song that begins with the line, Starry, Starry Night. Van Gogh is embedded into our popular culture. And because of this, we think we know him. But the truth of the matter is that much of what we've been talking about with this agonized virtuoso is the most sincere exercise in mythmaking. Like so many others gone before their time, so think John Lennon, Kurt Cobain, David Foster Wallace, and so on, an artist's unexpected death becomes the perfect catalyst for the elevation of a cultural icon to the status of saint, hero, or god. And by and large, this apotheosis leaves us with a romanticized view of someone's life and work. We love stories. And even if the juiciest parts of a story aren't true, we don't really care. It's so much more pleasurable for us to think collectively of Van Gogh, sigh wistfully, and say, what a poor man, and to think he never sold one work during his lifetime. Even if we are wrong, and we are, we want to believe the myth, and thus we carry it on. It turns out that the myth of Van Gogh as a distressed genius began incredibly soon after his death. Art historian Natalie Hynek notes that less than two years after his passing, the term genius was already being assigned to Van Gogh by art critics. Drawn to the fact of his mostly solitary existence and, of course, his suicide, it became very easy for experts and the general public alike to begin appointing various adjectives to describe him. Disturbed, forsaken, tragic, mad, tortured. And once these descriptions began to take hold in the public imagination, there was really no stopping it. As early as the 1930s, some historians began to lash back against the mythologizing of Van Gogh. In a 1936 article in the American Magazine of Art, Gertrude Benson wrote that the majority of information circulating about Van Gogh was, quote, a kind of unscrupulous muckraking that sensationalizes the frustration, the tragedy, and not the achievements in a life that was obstinately dogged by misfortune. At best, the emphasis was on the poor fighter, the poor, poor sufferer. At worst, literary hacksters spun a Poe-like tale of horror from the melodrama in his life or shed crocodile tears over a Christ-like hero who moved stumblingly, but inevitably, towards his crucifixion." Unquote. Now, those are some fighting words from Benson for sure, and it is helpful to note that Irving Stone's sentimental embellishment of Van Gogh's life had been published only two years prior and he's undoubtedly the literary hackster to whom Benson refers. So Benson is probably reacting directly to Stone's book here. But regardless of the circumstances, she was right. If there ever was an artist whose story was subjected to such hyperbole, it's Vincent van Gogh. 
But how much of the information about his life is true? How much of it is romanticized fiction? Vincent Willem van Gogh was born in the village of Zundert in the Netherlands on March 30, 1853. His youth was fairly uneventful, and family noted that while he drew pictures from time to time, there was never a real indication of any solid artistic talent or tendency. And indeed, his decision to become a professional artist came rather late in his life, at the age of 27, after first pursuing careers as a teacher, a clergyman, and then an art dealer. Art became a constant in his life around the age of 16, though, when his uncle found him a job as a clerk at an international art dealership called Goupil & Company. He trained first in The Hague before transferring to the firm's London office. And he didn't love the work, so eventually he was fired from the job. But the clerkmanship did something rather important for him. It kept him immersed in the art world and would ultimately feed his curiosity, leading him to collect prints, art reproductions, and books in order to study them and to teach himself how to draw. Until roughly 1880, Vincent ping-ponged around England, Holland, France, and Belgium in pursuit of various career endeavors. It seems, like many of us, that he just didn't know what to do with his life. Ultimately, this conundrum was solved by his younger brother, Theo, who often acted as his confidant, financial backer, supporter, and all-around metaphorical guardian angel. Vincent and Theo were lifelong pen pals, and in his letters, Vincent would sneak in little sketches or drawings of places he visited or people he had seen. In 1880, Theo wrote Vincent and advised him to pursue art as a full-time career. Luckily for us, Vincent heeded that advice, and he spent the next few years ping-ponging around Europe again in search of artistic inspiration and training. Most art historians consider Van Gogh's first real achievement in painting to be his 1885 canvas called The Potato Eaters, which is a clear representation of Vincent's interest in what he called a, quote, painter of peasant life. He found everyday people, especially the working class, to be an inspiration an embodiment of the kind of Christly ideals that he proselytized during his early attempts at being a preacher. These initial peasant scenes are dark, shadowy, and full of earth tones. For those who only know Van Gogh through his irises, his cafe terrace at night, or a little painting called Starry Night, these works are shockingly dark. The ones many of us think of as being quintessential Van Gogh paintings didn't come into being until about 1886, when he moved to Paris to live with Theo and to dig deeply into the Parisian avant-garde of the Impressionists and the Post-Impressionists. Suddenly, Vincent was thrust into the worlds of Henri de Toulouse-Lautrec, Paul Gauguin, Paul Signac, and Claude Monet. These artists, some of whom became rather good friends with Van Gogh, dramatically impacted him. Under their influence, his works became bolder, brighter, more expressive, more spontaneous. His brushworks became shorter, livelier, and more prominent. Van Gogh, as we know him, really began to come into his own. But it wasn't until he made the momentous decision to move to southern France that his work really sprang into full bloom. Coming up next, we examine the height of Van Gogh's proficiency and the lows of his personal life. That's next, right after this break. If you're a regular listener to Art Curious, then you've heard me thank our production partner, Kabunki, for making each of our episodes sound so incredible. They've been with us since the beginning, and now they're here for you too. Need production and editing help for your own podcast? Sure. Full service video for your film or marketing project? You bet. 
How about original content for your website or campaign? No sweat. Kabuki does it all for video, audio, or whatever your medium. Their award-winning team has the tools and talent to elevate everything you do. Get to know our friends at Kabunki like we do and tell them Art Curious sent you. Visit kabunki.com. That's K-A-B-O-O-N-K-I.com. Kabunki, a silly name, but superb content. Welcome back to Art Curious. In early 1888, Van Gogh found himself exhausted and burned out by Parisian life. He was tired by the stress and pressure of both urban vitality and the manic art scene, and he was thrilled by the idea of a simpler life, and probably warm weather, too. He relocated first to the small Provencal town of Arles, where he settled into a life of extreme productivity. According to estimates, he created over 200 paintings in the short span of only 15 months. Like so many artists of the time, he was exhilarated by the light and the colors of the natural world around him, and the steadily good weather in Arles allowed him to spend full days painting outdoors, or en plein air, to practice his craft. And what he really wanted was to practice this craft with others who shared his obsession with art, color, and expression. He dreamed of forming an artist colony in a big yellow house in Arles, and so he invited his artist friends from Paris and beyond to join him in this endeavor. Famously, though, only one, Paul Gauguin, answered the call. And for a few months, the artists worked side by side and shared their theories on artistic development until the two men began to disagree and ceased collaborating. It was also around this time that the first signs of Van Gogh's mental instability began to surface. Late that year, Vincent experienced his first breakdown, possibly related to epilepsy, though the precise nature of his condition is still unknown and his physical and mental ailments combined with his despair at the failure of his artist colony and the fracture of his relationship with Van Gogh led to its apex with the legendary ear mutilation incident. Soon after, in May of 1889, Van Gogh had himself voluntarily committed to a mental asylum in the small town of Saint-Romy-de-Provence. He wrote, quote, I put my heart and my soul into my work, and I have lost my mind in the process, unquote. Once he was sufficiently healed physically, he sought emotional restoration the only way he knew how, through a continual devotion to art. Nature still held its attraction, and once he felt able, he painted the hospital's garden, its olive trees, bouquets of flowers, mountains, and towering cypresses with as much vigor as he always had. And it was during this period that some of his most memorable works, like Starry Night, were created. He stayed at the asylum in Saint-Rémy for a year, experiencing several more fits and breakdowns, with some lasting for weeks at a time. One of his doctors even noted that he attempted to poison himself by ingesting paint and kerosene. Vincent became convinced that the asylum was actually causing him to mentally disintegrate even faster. And so, in May of 1890, Vincent left Saint-Rémy-de-Provence with the blessings of his doctors to return to Paris and to the comfortable support of his brother, Théo. If there's one thing that we can see about Vincent van Gogh, it's that he didn't really stay anywhere for a very long period of time. He itched for change, and most often sought it in a change of location. Only days later, he left Paris and moved to the town of Auvers-sur-Oise, which is about 30 kilometers north of Paris, close enough to Théo, but far enough from the city that he could still seek the authentic, simple life for which he yearned. He carried on, producing multiple landscapes, including wheat filled with crows, but the countryside didn't have as much healing power as he originally hoped. 
his depression continued, and his illnesses worsened. And so on July 27, 1890, Van Gogh walked into the middle of one of those fields he had so lovingly rendered, and with a revolver, he shot himself in the stomach. He died two days later, on July 29th. He was 37 years old. Vincent van Gogh's life was turbulent, and his early demise is most certainly heartbreaking. But much of the collective image of van Gogh as a misunderstood and unloved genius is still highly mythologized. Take, for example, that often-repeated nugget that van Gogh's art was completely unappreciated during his lifetime, and that he never sold one work of art. Untrue. In a wonderful series called 125 Questions, the Van Gogh Museum in Amsterdam answered this one by posting a reply on their website, saying, quote, We don't know exactly how many paintings Van Gogh sold during his lifetime, but in any case, it was more than a couple. Vincent sold his first painting to the Parisian paint and art dealer Julien Tanguy, and his brother Theo successfully sold another work to a gallery in London, The Red Vineyard, which Vincent painted in 1888, was bought by Anna Bloch, the sister of Vincent's friend Eugène Bloch. Van Gogh often traded works with other artists, and in his younger years often did so in exchange for some food or drawing or painting supplies. In this sense, Vincent actually sold quite a few works during his lifetime, unquote. Within the artistic community then, his art was exhibited, seen, and appreciated. In fact, during the time period that he committed himself to the asylum in Saint-Rémy, his work was exhibited multiple times in both Brussels and Paris. He was shown alongside contemporaries like Camille Pizarro, Paul Cézanne, and Pierre-Auguste Renoir. He could even count the great Claude Monet as one of his admirers during his lifetime. In terms of public interest in his work, yes, things were probably a little bit slower on the pickup than the artist himself would have liked. But let's think about Vincent's biographical timeline here. He made the choice to pursue art as a full-time endeavor only in the last decade of his life, half of which he spent learning, working, and perfecting his techniques. So, of course, he didn't have a lot of time to get out there and market himself and his artwork. And it isn't rare for many artists to go years, even decades, or lifetimes, before finding artistic recognition or admiration. And finally, let's consider the art market in general at the end of the 19th century. Van Gogh's art fits squarely into the world of the avant-garde, which meant that many people probably considered his work too strange or radical, too unrealistic for their tastes. Van Gogh was certainly not alone in this. So many of the Impressionists and Post-Impressionists had the same problems. So think of Claude Monet once again. Today, his works are reproduced so ubiquitously that your mom probably has an umbrella with the water lilies emblazoned across it. We see his works as almost oversaturated in their popularity. But Monet didn't begin selling works until he was in his mid-40s, and most of his early Impressionist works, which we think of as masterpieces today, were initially scorned and hated by critics, viewers, and artists alike as being ugly and technically crude. We'll be returning to this idea of the revolutionary Impressionists in a later point with Art Curious, by the way. So, while it may be unfortunate that Vincent van Gogh didn't sell more during his lifetime— it certainly isn't as mournful or pitiable a situation as popular culture may have led you to believe. It was actually all too common. There is the one part of the Van Gogh mythology that really seems to stick, and that is his tragic suicide in 1890. We can really only speculate as to the reasons behind it and how it truly came about, but a few supposed eyewitness accounts give us a hint at the narrative. 
When Van Gogh moved to Auvers-sur-Oise during the weeks before his death, he took a room at a local inn in the center of town called the Auberge Ravou. The innkeeper's teenage daughter, Adeline, distinctly remembers the events of late July 1890 through her life, and they became part of her family's legend, having been consistently reiterated by her innkeeper father. When she was in her late 70s in 1953, Adeline committed them to paper. In her account, she wrote of that morning on July 27th that Van Gogh had left the inn for his usual daily painting sessions, loaded down with his easel, canvases, paints, and so forth. But he deviated from his normal schedule when he did not return before sunset. This, she said, was unusual. And it did not follow the artist's behavior. When he did return to the inn, it was after 9 p.m., and he was without his equipment, and Adeline's mother noticed that the man was moving rather slowly towards his room, with his hands delicately holding his stomach. Adeline's document described what happened next. Quote, Mother asked him, Monsieur Vincent, have you had a problem? He replied in a suffering voice, No, but I have... He did not finish, crossed the hall, took the staircase, and climbed to his bedroom. I was witness to the scene. Vincent made such a strange impression on us that Father got up and went to the staircase to see if he could hear anything. He thought he could hear groans, went up quickly, and found Vincent on the bed, moaning loudly. What's the matter, said Father, are you ill? Vincent then lifted his shirt and showed him a small wound in the region of his heart. Father cried, unhappy man, what have you done? I have tried to kill myself, replied Van Gogh, unquote. Shooting oneself in the chest or stomach, and accounts vary as to the exact location, is surely an insanely painful way to go. And it has the dubious distinction of not being as instantaneous a death as a shot to the temple or a forehead might provide. And my apologies for the morbidness of this discussion. But suffice to say, Vincent's injury was not immediately fatal then, and so he spent the following two days in and out of consciousness with the ability to speak to Adeline's family, the local police, and a couple of friends, including his physician, Dr. Paul Gachet. According to Adeline, during those final hours, he revealed that he had gone into a wheat field, shot himself with a revolver, and passed out from the pain. Later that evening, he apparently was revived by the cooler temperatures of nightfall and awoke in search of the revolver to finish the job. When he was unable to relocate the gun, he then opted to return to his room at the inn. He even reiterated his intentions to police, saying, quote, My body is mine and I am free to do what I want with it. Do not accuse anybody. It is that I wished to commit suicide. Unquote. Teo was alerted by telegram and quickly arrived by train with enough time to hold vigil over his dying brother. He then watched as his brother fell into a coma and died at approximately 1.30 a.m. on July 29th. This is the narrative we know about Vincent Van Gogh. It's part of the lore, part of the legend. But, is it really the truth? Next time on the Art Curious Podcast, we're breaking it down and going over the evidence. Was it suicide? Or was it murder?
Thank you for listening to this listener favorite episode of the Art Curious Podcast. This episode was written, produced, and narrated by me, Jennifer Dassel. Our theme music is by Alex Davis at alexdavismusic.com. Our logo is by Dave Rainey at daverainydesign.com. And social media help is by Emily Crockett. Our production services are provided by Kabunki, the silliest name in superb video and audio content. Let them help your show too. Visit kabonki.com. The Art Curious Podcast is sponsored primarily by Anchorlight. Anchorlight is a creative space founded with the intent of fostering artists, designers, and craftspeople at varying stages of their development. Home to artist studios, residency opportunities, and exhibition space, Anchorlight encourages mentorship and the cross-pollination of skills among creatives in the triangle. So please visit anchorlightraleigh.com. The Art Curious Podcast is also fiscally sponsored by VAE Raleigh, a 501c3 nonprofit creativity incubator. For more details on our show, including the images mentioned in the episode today, please visit our website, artcuriouspodcast.com. We are also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at ArtCuriousPod. Check back next week as we conclude the tale of Van Gogh's mysterious death and as we explore the unexpected, slightly odd, and strangely wonderful in art history. <laughs>